I am excited uh, as we are going deeper and deeper into the book of Mark. Um, again, this is good stuff. And so we're just going to start reading and start talking. And um, most importantly, just start listening. So we're in Mark 12. We're going to start at verse 35. And if you remember, just to give us a little context before we read, Jesus has just, he's fresh off of confrontations with the Pharisees and the Herodians who said, hey, should we pay our taxes? And you remember what he said, render that unto Caesar, that which is Caesar's. Then he was challenged by the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection. And he told them, hey, you're pretty ignorant of the word and you don't have the power of God. And then a scribe comes up to him last week asking him, what's the greatest law? And we remember that Jesus condenses all of the law into two. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This particular scribe looked at Jesus and respected his teaching and respected the answers that he was given, and he was edified by this answer. Um, but now Jesus addresses the rest of the scribes, and that's what we're going to take a look at in verse 35 uh, through verse 40 today. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For we have your truth in front of us. And again, sometimes, Father, we're at moments in our life where we are listening and you speak in that beautiful, still, small voice, that whisper that we can hear. Sometimes, Father, your word comes off like a megaphone, like a two-by-four. Today we pray, Father, that no matter how it is spoken, Lord, that we receive it. For teaching, for correction, for instruction. Teach your children, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So perhaps this has happened to you where you have walked into a conversation midway, thought you knew what was being discussed, felt the need to interject even passionately, only to have somebody kindly say, you know, we really weren't talking about that at all. If you've ever happened, that can sometimes be uncomfortable because you're taking something out of context. Very often, be it in the social media, um, we'll have a celebrity, a politician, a religious figure that is quoted out of context as saying something and it will spark debate and we do not understand the context because context is important. The definition of context, listen, the circumstances that form the settings for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. The circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, in terms which it can be fully understood and assessed. That is context. If you open up a book in the middle 
and try to read it. It's kind of hard to understand. If you start a movie in the middle or even a movie series in the middle, it's hard to understand. If you join the conversation of the story in the middle, it's hard to understand. Most of the comedy that we enjoy, it's called sitcom. It's called the situation comedy because the characters find themselves in a situation that is somehow misunderstood, misconstrued, and something is taken out of context. And we like to laugh because we can relate. And sometimes we even become uncomfortable for them. When we take things out of context, things get confusing. Let me give you a simple example that we can teach to our kids. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Anybody confused? Not so much. One, two, four, three, six, seven, nine, eight. 10. Now that's confusing. That doesn't even make sense as I'm saying it because it's taken out of context, something that we accept, something that we've grown to understand, taken out of context, and now, of course, it becomes very confusing. And so what we have is the Bible that tells us about the author of life. And when we don't go to the author of life who wrote the book on life, who created life as we know it, who created the idea of thinking, when we don't go to that author, what happens is life gets confusing. If you've ever been confused, I don't know what to do in this situation. You know, sometimes we can be very close to God and say, listen, I'm confused. But can you imagine the people that don't know God trying to sort their way through the newspaper, through the tragedies, through the challenges that this life brings and trying to figure it out? But the Bible again tells us God is not the author of confusion. It says that in 1 Corinthians 14.33. So when we take life out of context, we can't understand Simple questions, why we're here, how we got here, what went wrong, all these things. So in order to put life back into context, we go to God's word. We go to the Lord for truth, because the truth will set us free, right? But here's the thing, we can even read the Bible out of context. Does anybody know somebody or somebodies that have taken scripture out of context? All right, well, the famous example is this, is that of the man that is very depressed, and he needs a word from the Lord. And this man is struggling. And he says, oh God, I just need a word from you. And so what he does is he takes his Bible and he, he says, listen, wherever my eyes land, that I'm going to read and that's going to be your message to me. And the man opened up his Bible and he went to Matthew 27, verse 5, and his eyes landed on the words and Judas hung himself. The man was like, that can't be a message from the Lord, so let's do the best uh, one out of two. And so he turned to another passage, and he says, okay, Lord, whatever it is that you tell me here, this is going to be that word that I get from you. And the next passage he turned to is Luke 10.37, which read like this, do ye likewise. Closes his eyes and says, okay, God, I'm going to try it one more time. He goes to John 13, 2, which says, whatever you do, do quickly. And so context is king. It's very important to know why we're reading, what we're reading, where we're reading it, so that we can come to a full understanding of God's word. This is the big picture. When you understand the big picture that this is God's redemptive plan for mankind, when you understand that, it makes the stories and the other passages easier to understand. Not only do you do that, but when you look at the smaller passages and the stories within the Bible, it helps you understand the big picture. All of these things help you understand your part in it. Your part in history, your part in his story. Last week we started talking about the fundamentals and the foundations, and we talked about the importance of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and we found that in Deuteronomy. But when Jesus quotes the next important commandment. It's love your neighbor as yourself. And do we remember what book we found that in? You won't forget that. That was Leviticus, right? Which is it's mind-blowing when you understand the book of Leviticus. But these are the foundations, the fundamentals. But here's the thing about foundations and fundamentals. It's not just about the fact that we should love or show joy or what we should do and how we should respond in this life. It's also about your doctrine. 
what you believe about your God, because what you believe determines how you see the world and what you do about it. Your doctrine is very important. So, so when you go to churches that say, well, you know, doctrine is important here as long as everybody loves one another. We can't love each other for the right reasons unless we see God in the right context. This is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. It's been well said by Skip Heitzig, you can't know God if you don't know his word. And it's also well said that the more you know the word, the more you understand God. And so here's where we go for treasure. Because there's treasure in the truth. So I was talking to Travis. He shared a quote from Gail Irwin this week where Gail Irwin said it like this. He goes, I have a foolproof plan to find buried treasure. Do you want to know what it is? If you want to find buried treasure, you have to dig where it's at. If you want to find the treasure, you have to dig where it's at. We like finding treasure, even from the time that we were kids. Some of us in 1979, June, McDonald's introduced the greatest treasure of all time. It's what your kids call the Happy Meal. All right? The Happy Meal, which of course consisted of a red cardboard box with a yellow M on it, the golden arches. Inside that box, of course, you had gluten-free bread with a meatless burger as a child. And you had a fruit cup and you had yogurt. No! You had a hamburger. You had French fries. You had a soft drink. You had cookies. And the best part of all was you had the toy inside if you knew where to go. It was a happy meal. They even had jokes on the outside. So in case the toy didn't make you happy, the joke would. All right, and so you're looking at, oh, this is great. I got a happy meal on the can. All right, and if you didn't go and you didn't get your happy meal, you were miserable. What a mighty manipulation from the McDonald's Corporation. Um, and so that was the Happy Meal. This is the Word of God. This is treasure for life. The more we understand it, the more we understand what we're seeing out there and how to respond to it. Today, specifically, we're going to take a look at two key doctrines in the Christian faith that are laid out right in front of us. Right in this passage as Jesus is addressing the scribes. All right? And so... He says here in verse 35, Then Jesus answered and said to them, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, stop right there for one second. Remember last week, an astounding, uh, an astounding fact is that God, the Christ asks 307 questions in Scripture. He's asked 183 questions, and how many does he answer again? Three. Okay? He answers three questions. All right? And here, he asks a question. Hey, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And for the answer, and to help them and to force them to answer the question, Look at verse 36, because there's a key doctrine in here that often gets looked over. For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Why is this so important? Because if you notice that Jesus is questioning the scribes, the lawyers, they spend their time... Uh, transcribing the law, learning how to apply the law, reading it all the time. Nobody was more familiar with the law, and Jesus asks them a simple question, but as he does it, look at what he says here. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Do you see why this is important? Because Jesus Christ himself is acknowledging the authority of the Old Testament scriptures in doing this. He's acknowledging it. And we say, okay, well, how do we get the scripture? How do I know I can trust this book in front of me? It's something that we call in Christianity, and it's fundamental to Orthodox Christianity. It's fundamental to our faith. It's what we call the inspiration of scripture. That scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it reads like this. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
See, the inspiration of Scripture tells us that it's God-breathed. And that answers the question by critics who say, well, isn't the Bible a book written by man? Well, yes, it is. But if it's only written by man, is this not a problem? If this book is only written by men, then I think that we should have a problem with it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. All Scripture is God-breathed. He breathed into men, not in a way that was, okay, uh, Matthew, sit down, take a note. That's called dictation. No, this is inspired. You understand inspiration. When you think of inspiration, we think of, okay, well, um, you see this beautiful man or a beautiful woman, and you say, oh, well, you know what? Well, when I, when I met my wife, I wrote a song. I was inspired to write a song for Tiffany. Don't ask her about this. All right, we were at FAU, and she was still not dating me, and I was inspired to write a song for her. I took her up in the music room, and I played this song because I was inspired. And some artists see a sunset, or they see the sunrise. They get inspired by what they see, and they're so moved by it that they have to write something. Well, now take that to another level, and what you have is the inspiration of Scripture, where a man, a human being, is so full of God that what comes out is 100% God, but it's also 100% man. Isn't that interesting? Let me explain it like this. I thought about it this week, and it's probably a silly example, but let's try it anyway. Okay, when I write on this piece of paper, okay, I'm writing on this piece of paper with this pen. I have to press on the pen onto the paper, and I write something. Now, is what's on the paper, was it 100% the pen? Or was it like 50-50? It's like kind of the pen, kind of you. No, it's 100% the pen. It's 100%. Okay, so what gets written on that paper comes from the pen. It comes from the ink. Okay, when the ink, when it gets pressed on the paper, so too what comes out of it is from the pen. There's no way to deny that it's the pen that made the mark on the paper. But there's also no way to deny that this pen isn't going to make that mark without this man writing something on it. So it's from me and it's from the pen. That's a way to help understand the inspiration of Scripture, perhaps. Listen, what comes out of your mouth, it said, is the overflow of what your heart. The writers of Scripture, the writers of Scripture, these were tax collectors. They were fishermen. They were kings. They were peasants. Uh, they were shepherds. But what came out of them was 100% God. That's why we can trust it. That's why we need to trust it. This is fundamental to our faith, being able to trust the truth that is in this book, because it tells us who God is. If you and I were able to sit down and say, well, you know what, I, I, I kind of think that this is inspired, but this isn't inspired, and this is what some of the churches do, some of the more liberal churches will say, well, listen, well, this part, you know, this part was more, this, 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 they'll write it off to being completely cultural, because it's not something that they like. It's not something that makes them comfortable. Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, correction in righteousness. We have to be able to trust that. If not, it becomes my idea of what's in it versus your idea of what's in it. And then what we have is just a book that is torn apart by human ideologies and human agendas. So how can we understand that this, how, how can we know that this is a book we can trust? This is important. The first reason that we can understand that this is a book we can trust is because Jesus did. Right? When it comes to the Old Testament, he obviously trusted it. He said, okay, well, this was given by David, but by the Holy Spirit, David said this. So in order to make the case that he's going to make with the Pharisees, he's saying, listen, yes, this was said by David. That's the one that you all identify yourselves with. You all say, well, your Messiah is going to be a son of David. But Jesus is saying, okay, you're missing something. And so what he does is he quotes Scripture. So Jesus trusts the truth of the Old Testament Scripture. 85% of what you see in the Old Testament, 85% of the books, let me say that, 85% of the books are in some way, shape, or form either directly quoted, alluded to, or responsible for what we have in the New Testament writings. Jesus quoted from 24 Old Testament books specifically alluded to other stories. Uh, he talks about Cain and Abel. He talks about Lot's wife. He talks about David and the showbread. So, J David, so Jesus believed that the Old Testament was authoritative. He believed it was authoritative. 
you refer to it as if it was authoritative. But then what we also have is the New Testament. Okay, Pastor, I understand that if Jesus said it, then it's got to be authoritative. But what about the New Testament writings? Are they consistent? Yes, they are. So Jesus believed that that's one reason. The second reason is the consistency in the New Testament. How did a book get in the New Testament? Why, why do some people have Bibles that have the Maccabees in it and they have the Gospel of such and such in it? Why are they in the Bible? Why were certain books excluded from the Bible? Here was the criteria to make these books consistent with the New Testament. One, they had to be consistent with the teachings of the apostles. That's the number one thing. Number two, the connection with the apostles in each book, either written directly by them or someone directly connected to them. So there had to be that connection with the apostles. And number three, these books were utilized and accepted by the early church as being consistent with the apostles' teachings. Those three criteria. Now, that helps us take a look and understand as to why certain books aren't in there. There's a book that was added by the church in 1546 called the Book of the Maccabees. Why isn't the Maccabees in there? Well, because the Old Testament canon was settled. The Old Testament, what you have in that Old Testament, was settled about a thousand years before that. It was agreed upon. What was accepted in the Old Testament? And so what they did in 1546, after the Reformation, I believe it might have been the Council of Trent, they added certain books in order to justify certain doctrines of the church. Now that's important. Because it gives you a framework to understand how these books got in here. Now, I know this is a little doctrinal today, but just go with me on it. There is a book called The Gospel of Judas. How many of you have read it? How many of you have been inspired by it? How many of you can imagine saying, well, you know what, according to The Gospel of Judas 3.16, no, that doesn't even make sense to say. What's Judas's good news? There is none for Judas. He's the son of perdition. So that book, rejected. The Gospel of Thomas is also rejected, primarily because it's written at least 150 years after Thomas died. That's problematic, because that means it's not truthful, and it's not consistent. So these are two really big reasons. One, Jesus accepted the authority of Scripture. Two, the New Testament is very consistent. Three, it's unique. Again, we recognize written by shepherds and kings and fishermen and tax collectors and men of religion such as Paul. So it's unique. And as we've seen in our study on, uh, on Sunday nights, when we're looking through the Old Testament going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you can see from Genesis to Exodus where we've been that Jesus is on every page. He's on every single page. So it's also unique. It was written over thousands of years with one consistent message. Number four, the manuscript evidence. The evidence that you have for the New Testament is insane. According to Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case of Case for Christ and The Case for Faith, he said, if you laid the surviving copies of Aristotle one on top of the other, they would barely make it four feet high. Do the same with the surviving copies of the New Testament they would be one mile high. Nothing else in history even comes close. So that's reason number four. Reason number five, the very existence. The most powerful rulers in this world have come against this book, trying to forbid the Bible, trying to outlaw the Bible, trying to destroy the Bible. The French philosopher Voltaire said this. He said, listen, in a hundred years, the Bible is going to be non-existent. You're going to be able to keep it in a museum. One hundred years after the philosopher's death, while they were printing, the French Bible Society was printing Bibles out of his house. Number six, the fulfillment of prophecy. All right, listen to this. All right, the very fulfillment of prophecy, okay? The ancient world has many different devices for determining future, known as divination. Um, but you can't find in any of the religious books that are accepted by the other religions specific prophecies of great historical significance. You can't. Mohammedism cannot point to any prophet of the coming uh, Muhammad uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founders of any cult in this country rightly identify ancient texts specifically foretelling their appearance. In the case of Jesus, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by over 500, spoken by different voices over 500 years. 
including 29 major prophecies fulfilled on a single day, the day he died. Since many of these prophecies were to do with the place and manner of his death, and even the place of his birth, he could hardly have deliberately tried to fulfill them. You see the significance. So the prophecies that he fulfilled, it was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that I'm crucified here, that I do this, and that I'm going to be born. That doesn't doesn't even make sense to us. Suppose the chance of each one of these prophecies being fulfilled in isolation was very generous, 50%. Let's say 50%. Then the chance of 300 prophecies all being fulfilled is the same as that of 300 consecutive coin tosses all coming up tails. It would be this. It would be one in two million, 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 million. Actually, there's 15 word, 15 times the word million is written out. It would be one in two with 15 millions behind it. That's the prophecy. That's the significance of prophecy. But here's probably the one that you'll be able to relate to the most. How do we know that this book is true? How can we trust that this book is true? Because those that have made it their final authority to you, it has changed your life. I look at a room of people who have made this book their final authority or trying to make this book their final authority, and it is changing your life. No greater evidence for the gospel than the changed life, and that's the truth. This is really important. Here's the application. You see, there's a lot of implications to what we're looking at today. So the first thing is the inspiration of Scripture. It's crucial to what you believe about Christianity. Even from the time that we're kids, we say, Jesus loves me, this I know. How? For the Bible tells me so. The truth is derived from the Bible. The problem is, and where we get confused, is that man has changed the word based off of circumstances rather than looking at the word and then looking at the world. And when we change things, that's when confusion sets in. So in our life, there's always a problem with final authority. Whether it be you being at work and you don't know, well, should I go to this manager about this or should I go to that manager about this? You go to your mother and you say, well, mom, um, can I have this? And she says what? Ask your father. All right. And so we begin confusing authority very young. Does this court have the power to make this decision or does this court? Does the, can the president do that? Or does that lie with the Senate? Or does that lie with the, with the House of Representatives? And everybody's confused about final authority, but not the Christian. Because we have infallible, inspired authority in front of us. And that's what Jesus appeals to, right? When they ask him, what's the first most important commandment? What does he say? He refers to Scripture, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. When Jesus is arguing with these, he brings them back to Scripture, scriptural principles, and a final authority. What it means to our lives. As far as why you're on this planet, this is the final authority. As far as how you got here, this is the final authority. As far as what's went wrong out there and how to make it better, this is the final authority. And what I'm trying to help you understand is this, is that when we talk about these fundamental doctrines, is doctrine important? Yes, because it's what you believe about God. But you, what you believe about God, that determines, well, this is a final authority as to why I'm on this planet. It has everything with what God says to do and who He says I am. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's authoritative. He's the way to those who have lost direction. He ends the confusion to those who've been lied to. And He's life to those who have experienced death. He's the final authority when it comes to gender. He's the final authority when it comes to marriage. He is the final authority when it comes to who wins. He's the final authority when it comes to who loses. He's the final authority as to how the story began and to how the story will end. You see, He's the final authority. When you're struggling and you're going through something in this life about finances, about parenting, about whatever, you can go to this and this is a final authority that you can stand on. And nothing's going to shake it because it's infallible. That's why the doctrine is important. When when Jesus approaches these religious leaders and he says, well, David, by the Holy Spirit, might have said this. No. David, by the Holy Spirit, says this. 
So Jesus is the final authority. So if we're clear on that, it's not only the context that's important, it's also the content. What he says specifically is like, listen, you all are confused. And there's going to be confusion. Because you're saying that Messiah is going to be the son of David. Now, if Messiah is only the son of David, why is Jesus calling him Lord? Why is David calling him Lord? It's a great argument. And it's one they can't answer. So he basically goes to the scribes, listen, you've been copying this. You've been applying it. You are supposed to understand it and teach others more so than anybody else. So can you explain this to me? Let me open up my Bible, Jesus says to them. Can you explain this to me? Why does David call him Lord if it's his son? How many of you call your sons Lord? Can you imagine the monsters we create? Tiffany, bring Lord John in. No, he's eight. I'm not going to call him Lord. He doesn't even like to be called John John. I want to be called John. Okay? You think I'm going to call him Lord John? David's not calling his son Lord. And so Jesus is saying, how do you explain this? Huh. You know what? We can't. That's exactly right. You can't unless you see it in the context of Scripture. So what has prevented them from seeing truth is the same thing that usually prevents us from experiencing truth and understanding it. One, our education. Our education usually prevents us, hinders us from seeing the truth for what it is. The other reason is our experiences. Those sometimes hinder us from being able to accept and receive the fullness of the truth. The other is the circumstances that we're in. That prevents us from seeing truth. And the other is what our desires are. These are four things. Education, experience, circumstances, and our desires that prevent us from seeing the truth. Let me, under- let me explain how this works for them and for us. The first thing that prevents us from seeing truth, again, it's the way that they're educated. These scribes learn from the scribes before them, learn from the scribes before them, These Pharisees learn from the Pharisees before them, who learn from the Pharisees before them, who learn from the Pharisees before them. They picked up what they knew about God from their forefathers, and because that, they didn't understand it. All they were ever taught was the fact that, well, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. All right, just like Moses delivered us from the Pharaoh, so too, another Messiah, another Savior will come just to deliver us from the oppression that we're experiencing on this planet. And so in that way, because of the way that they were brought up in the religious tradition, and listen, many people, because of certain doctrines, they limit God. They're taught a certain doctrine or they're taught something in the church, and because of the way they're taught it in the church, God is this big instead of being this big. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to fit Scripture into these small theological boxes, sometimes named after people or after certain religious traditions. And I'm trying to fit God into this, and I'm trying to fit Scripture into this, and it ain't working. Because it won't hold Him. So it can be our education, but it can also be our experiences. So many of these guys that Jesus encountered said, this is just the carpenter's kid. That's Mary's son. That's Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. He's not a rabbi. He's not a Messiah. So their experiences prevented them from seeing what was right in front of them. And we could say guilty as charged if we hadn't done the same thing. How many times have you, because life has always happened like this, it's always going to happen like this, and yes, I believe in God and I go to church every Sunday, but I still limit what I believe about God to the things I've experienced in this life When our God is greater, our God is stronger. Our God is bigger, right? And it's because of the environment now. What happens is is that, again, we take a God that is immense and infinite and we try to confine him to the limitations of this. It's said of a shark that has the potential to grow eight feet. If you keep it in a small tank, it will only grow six inches and then it'll be considered full-grown. Its growth will be proportional to its environment. Its growth is proportional to the environment. If you've been in a stifled religious environment, then you're going to struggle. So all they see is Jesus, all they see is that the Messiah, when he comes, is supposed to be a son of David. 
in other circumstances. That's another way that they limit God. Their circumstances are here. They're oppressed by the Roman government. They want deliverance so that they can, again, continue to build their own kingdom. That's their experience. Sometimes because of an illness or because of a family struggle, all right, and the way that we deal with that, we're limiting God that way too. That's another way because of our circumstances, and our God is only as big as the outcome of our circumstances. And then the other way that we limit God, again, we said, the other way that we limit Him is because of our desires. How many of you been prevented from seeing perhaps the right situation, the God-given situation? You've been prevented from seeing that because you were so busy filling up with something else. Listen, this goes for relationships especially. Okay, So many times we're in the wrong relationship and we're pursuing the wrong things in this life and it prevents us from seeing the right things and the God-given things. Even when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, remember this. When he was tempted in the wilderness... After the third time that he was tempted, and Satan was sitting there saying, listen, I'll give this to you. I'll give this to you. Why don't you take stone? Why don't you make it into bread? But after the third time, he said, get behind me, Satan. We're to worship God and God alone. Get away. And only after he dismisses what's not from God does it say then that the angels came and ministered to him. We're only going to see the things that God has for us when we stop relying on the things of the world and stop limiting God, making him about our circumstances, because what God is is so much greater. Explain this, he's saying. How is your Messiah going to be a son of David, and why is that same David calling him Lord? This is the second crucial truth, the second part of our part of our doctrine that is important for you to understand. One was the inspiration, but this is called the incarnation. And it's pretty wonderful. The incarnation means that the way that this came about and how to explain and reconcile those scriptures, the only way to reconcile those scriptures is that God became a man. God became a man and he was born of a woman, but he was the son of God. He was the son of God. He was the son of man. Now, so many foolish struggled with this because they thought it was foolishness. The Greeks could not accept this. The Greeks struggled to accept this. They were like, what kind of a god would make himself into a man? Would lower himself like that? Your god would. The truth was far behind, beyond anything that they could understand. But you want to also see how consistent it is. Think about this. If inspiration of scripture means that the scripture that you have, it's 100% God, and it's written through man, then what you have in the incarnation is you have a God that is 100% man. And do you see how Jesus brings these ideas? Do you see how our God brings these things together that we, through our minds, we can't even reconcile? That this scripture is given to you by man. Did man write it? Yes. Did God write it? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus man? Yes. Exactly. So it's the incarnation now. This is another part, and we say, well, okay, these are big religious terms. No, they're important religious terms. Believing this is inspired. Believing that Jesus came as a man is really, really, really important to us. Right? Because what does it tell us? It tells us, first of all, that when there was a battle between, when there was war between God and man, and God was holy, and demanded justice for sin, and no man could satisfy that, it says that God loved us so much that He became man. So through the fact that Jesus became a man, what happened was this, is that you know He loves you. That's why it's important to take doctrine and take a look and to say, well, how do we apply it to our life? Listen, when you sit there for a moment and you think, listen, the God of heaven confined Himself to a womb, became a man, was tempted in every way as we are, why was He tempted in every way? So he could identify with those that he came to save. So that when you say no temptation has overcome you, except that which is common to man, or who is a sympathetic high priest that was tempted in every way like we are, yet he was without sin. So he shows us how to overcome sin. He comes to identify with us. He comes because he loves us. He comes to show us how to live. What to say in certain situations. How to respond. How to act. How we should treat the poor. This is God becoming man. And this is why this is really important. But the religious leaders can't understand it. They can't fathom it because of their own experience. So he's 100% God. He's 100% man. 
And Jesus is asking, and they just do not have an answer. Listen, here's what you don't want. You don't want God, because that's what's happening right here. God is right in front of them, and they do not see it. But how many of us, because of our situations, have had God at sometimes doing something right in front of us, and we've kind of missed it? And a lot of that has to do with what we believe about our God. Listen. The New Testament shows us that because He is God, He can feed the multitudes, but because He's a man, it shows us that He gets hungry. When the New Testament tells us about Jesus, it tells us about a Jesus who weeps at the grave of his friend Lazarus because he's a man. But it tells us about a Jesus who will one day wipe every tear from our eyes because he's God. It tells us about a Jesus who is a man and so he thirsts. But it also tells us that he will provide living water for us and out of our hearts it will flow. It tells us about a man who calls another man down from a tree just so he can dine with him, Zacchaeus. But it shows us he's God because he'll hang on a tree so that he can have relationship and sup with us for all of eternity. These are the implications when you begin to think about it. What do these doctrines mean? Why are they important? They're huge. To know that he loves you, to know that he cares about you, to know that he became a man for you. So there's the incarnation, there's the inspiration. The third part of our study today, to me perhaps, is one of the most compelling. And this is the implication of what you believe. Take a look, because this is really sad. This is really sad. Then he said to them in his teaching, You beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces the best seats in the synagogue, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive not just condemnation, but what does it say? Greater condemnation, it says. Right? Why is this important? Because what these people believe about God, or what they don't believe about God, is evident in how they live their lives as is what you believe about God. They desire to go around in long robes. They desire to go around in long robes. Right? It's about how they look. It's about their appearance. Right? They go around in long robes. It's how they dress and... The rest of the world looks at them and says, wow, he must be somebody pretty important, right? But what's missing is their understanding as to why they're here, because what we're told as the elect of God is to dress like this. It says, clothe yourself. It says, put on twelve tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. That's supposed to be your dress, Christian. That's supposed to be the way that we dress. It also tells us to put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6. These are the things that we're supposed to wear. Now, when you have the right heart on the inside, it will affect how you dress on the outside. I won't wear any t-shirt up here. There are some shirts that are just for working out. <laughs> but it affects everything about our lives, what we believe about our God. So they want to go around in long rows. It says they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love the adulation and the adoration of the public. It's good to see you. Oh, it's good to see you. All right. Oh, it's good to see you. Oh, it's good to be seen. <laughs> you know, it's like here they are. You know, and it's like they love the greetings in the marketplaces. And in loving the greetings in the marketplaces and in the way that they dress, all that we're seeing is people that are looking for God's approval or man's approval. They're looking for man's approval. And because they're looking for man's approval, what's happening is they're getting their rewards here. You might know the scripture better than anyone else. You might transcribe it. You might apply it, but you're not. You're not applying it the way that God meant you to apply it. So you're looking for the adoration. Do you see the implications of what you believe? 
when you believe the incarnation, that he came as a man for you, the implication is this, okay? Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, listen, just so I could spread the gospel to the weak, I became weak. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those who had the law, I became as one who had the law. To those who didn't have the law, I became one of those. Paul practiced what he called incarnational ministry because Jesus came as a man to identify with those he came to save. You see, when you believe that, when you understand that, when you understand Scripture, it's going to change the way you dress. It's going to change the way that you speak. It's going to change the way that you live. It's going to change everything about you. 20 years ago, I'm not listening to the same music I'm listening to now. I'm not watching the same movies that I'm watching now. I'm not speaking the same way I spoke then. Definitely not speaking the way I spoke speak now then. What you believe influences what you do. It says here, they want the best seats in the synagogue and the best seats places at the feast. Who should have had the best seats during this time? Jesus Christ. He should have had the best seats. What does he do instead? Well, he takes a towel, he wraps it around him, he, ta- he takes his garment, wraps it around him, and he washes their feet. He takes the place of the lowest servant. And that's the example that we have set by Jesus because the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Who devour widows' houses. What does the Bible say about the way that we're supposed to treat the widows? Not devour their houses. It says that we're supposed to, true religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans. You see what I mean? It's like what you believe influences how you treat this world, how you see everything out there, how you respond to it. It says these will receive greater condemnation. Listen, we've said it once, we've said it a million times. The people Jesus was the toughest on are the same people who misrepresented him. He was much easier on the uh, adulteress. He was much easier on the prostitute. He was much easier on the tax collector, uh, on the fisherman, than he was on the people that misrepresented his father. So what you believe has true implications as to how we live. Now that said, um, when you look at these people, do you see people that are free? The scribes, the way that they're living? No. You see people that are in bondage. They're living in fear that they'll lose the approval of man versus living in freedom. God's desire is for you to live in freedom. So what is it that's holding you in bondage? What is it about your life right now that you believe that is greater than what God believes about you, what God's Word says about you? True freedom is understanding who you are in Him, who He is, what He can do, and trusting that in every decision of your life, really believing it because that's where the healing comes from. The difference between fear and freedom is in what you believe and who you believe. That's the difference between the two. And if Jesus says, hey, listen, who the Son sets free is free indeed, then whose voice have you made louder than his? This is where the healing comes. This is where freedom comes. This week, the whole family has been under the weather. And so here's how it looks. When we're under the weather. Hannah was sick this week, and so is Hannah's sick, and she's extra pitiful when she's sick. Not like Dad. Dad had the man flu earlier in the week. How many of you know what the man flu is? All right, the man flu, that's something that when the man gets the flu, oh, honey, get me some Gatorade, get me some soup, and we're kind of really, men are extra pitiful sometimes when we get sick. Why? Because our mothers kind of look, oh, do you need some chicken soup and do you need this? And now we try to do the same thing with our wives. I had the man flu. When Hannah was sick this week, here's what we did. We called the doctor. Why did we call the doctor? Because we know that the man with the degree, well, he's familiar with these kind of sicknesses, so we call him. What does he do? He calls the pharmacy. The pharmacy takes the prescription. Now it's our responsibility to go to the pharmacy to get the thing that has been prescribed because we believe that the doctor knows what he's doing. So we'll go to the pharmacy to get the medication so that she can receive the healing. But we have to believe certain things first. We have to believe, one, that the doctor knows what's wrong and how to fix it. Then we have to trust the fact that the pharmacy is going to put the right medication in the bottle 
And then we also have to take that medication and we have to apply it in the way that we're told to. And what we do through the whole process tells you what we believe about this doctor or not. Right? And so what we do in this life, some things are small decisions, some things are big, but everything that we do reflects what we believe about our God. Because you're not who you say you are, you're who He says you are, and you're not, you're not what you say you're going to do, you are what you do. This week the whole nation was touched by the story of um, Brand Jean. Brand Jean is the brother, and I hope I pronounce this right, of Botham Jean. And Botham Jean, a while back, while well, he was shot and killed by uh, an ex-police officer who walked into an apartment and um, claims that she thought that this was the wrong place, and she shot the man to death, and she was found guilty of murder, and she was sentenced 10 years. And I don't think there's one person that looked at this that knows the faith that said that that, that young man did it on that stand. That was Jesus Christ. What he said was this. If you're truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. And then he asked, he proceeded to ask the judge if he could get up and hug his brother's murderer. What you saw told you what you believe about his God. And his God's pretty big. It was right after that that the judge went up, handed her a Bible and said, listen, find the truth. What you do. Have you been pressed this week? Have you been challenged this week? If you've been challenged this week, listen, God's aware of every bit of your challenges. All right? He's putting you in those challenges to get you to press into Him so that He can reveal Himself more to you and so that He can reveal Himself more to this world in and through you, like He did through the young man on the witness stand, because every day you are on the witness stand. Every single day. Through everything you do. So I want to close our service today. I think Travis had one more song prepared, and I think it's a simple one. Jesus, we love you. Is that right? So what I want to do today, the way I want to close the service, wherever you've been at in your life, what you have is you have the Word became flesh. All right? The Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and He lived among us. We have in front of us the inspired Word, which tells us about the living Word. And the living Word was man and He was God. And you have a book here that was written by man, but it is all from God and if you've been pressing into anything else in your life, what I want to challenge you to do is through this last song, just cry out to God. Jesus, we love you.